So this talk is based on research I did for my PhD, which is completed late last year. And what I hope to do is to give you an overview of the topic uh, and share some of the amazing stories and sources that I discovered, um, while also highlighting some of the questions and challenges that arose over the course of the project. I framed my thesis as a history of the rural kitchen in New Zealand, covering the period from 1840 to 1940. Um, and while that may seem like a sort of narrow topic for three years and 80,000 words or so, um, certainly I think my dad thought it was, um, <laughs> in fact it, uh, it gave me quite a, uh, a great deal of interpretive freedom and it allowed me to construct a social history um, that encompassed many types of people and connected distant and diverse places. So to start with, I'd just like to um, kind of introduce the topic and give some sense of how expansive a history of the kitchen can be. I envisage the kitchen not as a discrete space bound within the home, but as the centre of a web of social relations and networks that was constantly shifting and changing. People, goods and information flowed into and out of the kitchen in an almost endless stream. So I wanted to trace some of those pathways and examine how they changed over time. Food does not just appear in the kitchen. It must be grown, gathered, traded or purchased and then transported to the home ready for use. Each of those processes has a history and those histories speak to changing patterns of land ownership and use, changing consumer habits and changing service networks. In this sense, a history of food is very much a political and economic history and tells us a great deal about regional infrastructures and lo local commerce. Once gathered, provisions must then be prepared for consumption, and of course the process of cooking has many histories too. Every society cooks at least some of its food. Anthropologist Claude Levi-Strauss called it a truly universal form of human activity. But the specific tools and techniques used for cooking are culturally, temporally and geographically specific. And this means that cooking spaces look different in different places and in different cultures. So what constitutes the kitchen may not be a designated room, but actually a series of connected spaces, both indoors and outdoors, that are used at various stages of the cooking process. Once that cooking process is complete, meals are almost always shared with others. And we can use the ritual of food sharing to mark social boundaries or to cement the bonds of family and community. Basic nourishment is transformed day after day, meal after meal, into a system of meaning that defines social relationships. To share a meal is to demonstrate a level of respect and care, and in the context of family and whanau, can be a way of showing togetherness and love. We can interpret that system of meaning in historical contexts and consider, for example, what the different social relationships might have been in households where, say, workers and bosses ate together, versus those where they ate at separate tables. These arrangements portrayed very different conceptions of class and community and different patterns of work and leisure. So I came to think of the kitchen as a microcosm of rural life, shaped by broad economic, social and political changes, while at the same time very much a product of individual communities and families. Carol Cunahan and Penny Van Esterick wrote in their 1997 book Food and Culture that food is life and life can be studied and understood through food. And the further I got into my research, the more that I came to believe that was true. Um, so that just gives you a, a kind of an idea of why I wanted to focus on the kitchen. But why the rural kitchen? Well, um, part of it is that I grew up on a farm, um, and so the subject was of personal interest to me. 
I'm not at all handy when it comes to uh, tractor work and shearing, as anyone would be able to tell you, but um, there were still aspects of these stories and these experiences that I could recognise um, and that I related to in some way. But that aside, I also felt that rural social history had been underrepresented in New Zealand scholarship, despite the prominence of what we might call the rural way of life in statements of our national identity. <coughs> Structurally, New Zealand evolved as part of Britain's rural hinterland, its most distant farm. And with that came an assortment of cultural baggage, including prefabricated characterisations of city and country. Literary scholar Raymond Williams wrote in 1973 that a structure of feeling had developed around rural life which obscured the specificity of distinct historical eras and regional experiences, emphasising instead a world of peace, innocence and simple virtue. We in New Zealand adopted that structure of feeling and I think even now we do tend to think of the country as being kind of a relatively constant um, society set in a almost a sort of enamelled world rather than in a living, changing one. But one notable attempt to upset that image of rural life was Miles Fairbairn's The Ideal Society and Its Enemies, which was written in 1989. And he argued that 19th century New Zealand society was too transient and work-oriented to allow for local communities to form, and that high rates of drunkenness and interpersonal violence marred our quote-unquote ideal colonial society. Jock Phillips has noted, however, that for all its brilliance, Fairburn's work lacked humanity, and the statistics obscured the diversity and texture of the communities it examined. Ben Schrader's recent book, The Big Smoke, gives us a rich and compelling history of colonial city spaces, um, but I found that there was room for complementary research examining the material experiences of country people, and that for all that we talked about country life and rural communities, we needed histories exploring how those lives and communities were actually structured. Um, so this brings me to one of the challenges of the study. As I say, there have been relatively few historical studies of rural social dynamics in New Zealand, and I think part of the reason for that, um, and I'm quoting a historian named Max Headley here, is that the rural past is looked upon with a nostalgia that is easily romanticised and which makes interpretation difficult. Those scholars who have examined rural communities, people like Fairburn, have been careful not to reinforce the inexact but long-held popular views of rural society as uniquely egalitarian. But I do think that sometimes they have gone too far in that direction and dismissed as a sort of idealised falsehood or um, as an untruth uh, almost every aspect of what we might think of as the rural way of life. They point out that class divisions that were so evident in the old world and were abhorrent to New Zealand's 19th century working men were nonetheless transferred here to New Zealand. Um, and they also point out that the ideal of the family farm succeeded only because of the alienation of millions of acres of Māori land. Those things are absolutely true and I was very, very careful to acknowledge them in the thesis. But I did also find evidence to suggest that uh, many individuals actively worked to build strong and cohesive communities offering assistance to their neighbours whenever they were needed and providing hospitality to all. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that further in the talk. Tom Brooking wrote in an unpublished article titled Lark Rise to Little Dean that the relatively egalitarian social order prevailing in rural New Zealand from the 1880s was achieved through a combination of hard work and social choice. And the challenge for me was exploring that idea without falling into um, nostalgia or those sort of, that sort of bucolic language. Um, another challenge was defining what I actually meant by rural. 
what I thought of in my own mind was very much shaped by the uh, Southland landscape where I grew up. And I'm sure that many of you have your own pictures in mind as well. Um, but when you think about it, the term rural, if taken to mean not urban, can actually encompass a broad range of activities, landscapes and communities. The Coda Yum Diggers of Northland and the station owners of Canterbury are both by this definition rural, but their experiences are of course markedly different. I gave this quite a bit of thought right at the start of the thesis and I actually did become quite despondent because you know, some scholars have completely dismissed the idea of rural as a category of analysis and I sort of began to think that maybe I should too. However, I pressed on um, and I was reassured by scholars who noted that for all its analytical slipperiness, the idea of the rural world still has a great deal of cultural significance because many people do still consider themselves to be rural people living a rural way of life. So I decided I'd just have to do my best um, and try and encompass all of the diversity that um, you know, is, is a part of the New Zealand rural world. Uh, and officially, I defined rural New Zealanders as those in counties and town districts with a population under 1,000 people um, and places that were economically dependent on primary production or were isolated from major and secondary urban areas to the extent that it affected the um, social and economic characteristics of the locality. That's the official definition. In practice, actually, it wasn't that much of an issue because I was using um, personal manuscript sources and I could assess each of those individually um, to see if they fit those criteria and also to see whether they sort of self-identified as rural. Um, and if they did, then I, I felt that there was reason enough to include them. I wanted this to be a peopled history of the rural kitchen, full of the personal stories that show the colour of everyday life. That's really what interests me and that's what was sort of the joy of the thesis. Um, and I am going to get to those wonderful stories very, very soon. That'll be most of the talk. <laughs> but first I did just want to mention one difficulty that this approach presented. Um, the history of domestic technology as it was actually used in people's homes does not necessarily match the timeline of technological innovation. Johanna Rolshevin suggests in the kitchen life world usage and perspectives that everyday kitchen culture has developed largely independently of architectural plans or of the attractive glossy images provided by kitchen manufacturers. The architect's model has, it would seem, played a very small role in how dwelling has evolved. I still needed to get a sense of change over time um, because the kitchen did change a great deal over the hundred years that I'm looking at. But I also wanted to demonstrate just how uneven and fitful that transformation of everyday kitchen culture was. In the past, as now, individuals selected the items in their homes for a wide variety of practical and personal reasons. And the difficulty was assessing those individual decisions and weaving them into a historical narrative. Um, so, as I've mentioned, many of my sources for doing that were qualitative. Um, so I trawled through archives and libraries looking for diaries, letters, oral histories and memoirs. This building was my happy place where I found many, many treasures. Um, and I also used rural newspapers and magazines. Uh, I found the Dairy Exporter, a magazine first published in 1925, particularly valuable uh, because it had a, an extensive women's section and it invited contributions on subjects such as recipes for home happiness, the modern well-equipped home and the ideal husband. <laughs> <laughs> 
Official publications such as the appendices to the journals of the House of Representatives and the reports of the Waitangi Tribunal were an unexpectedly rich source, providing information on housing through surveys and inspectors' reports, on cookery instruction in schools and community centres, and on the economic, environmental and emotional implications of the destruction of mahinga kai for Māori communities. What I didn't do in the thesis, but what I have the opportunity to do now, is use objects to enrich the evidence found in these written sources. And so I thought for the remainder of the talk, what I would do is highlight a few key objects from the kitchen that offer insights into how daily life was experienced by rural people, and use those as um, jumping off points to explore some of the key findings of the thesis. So the first theme I'd like to discuss is the domestic technology of rural New Zealand, and I'm going to use the history of the coal range as a case study to show how uneven and irregular the history of everyday kitchen culture can be. <laughs> so this is an advertisement for Shacklock Coal Range, which was a prominent feature of many rural kitchens from the 1880s through to the Second World War. The Shacklock Orion No. 1 was first produced in 1873 and was patented in 1882. It was developed by a young ironmonger from the English Midlands named Henry Shacklock, who established a foundry in Dunedin in 1871. Coal ranges were imported from Britain and the United States in the 1850s and 1860s, but many customers found them frustrating and ineffective because they were designed to burn bituminous coal rather than the subbituminous or lignite common in New Zealand. Shacklock's winning innovation was to design a wide, shallow firebox that drew in more air than other ranges, making it more suitable for burning lignite. He also encased the flue system so that the stove did not need to be bricked in, and you can see that in this example, it's actually in the middle of the room there. Um, and that was a concession to the scarcity of bricklayers in New Zealand at that time. Shacklock also ensured that the range would be able to burn peat or wood, which was the preferred fuel for those in backcountry areas. It proved a very popular design, and by 1900 the foundry on Crawford and Princess Streets in Dunedin was employing 40 hands. Many thousands of um, Shacklock coal or wood ranges uh, were in use around the country, and even in 1945, which was the first year that the means of cooking was included in the census, uh, coal and wood ranges were still in use in 61% of rural homes. That's of all types, not just Shacklock. And that's compared with 31.2% of urban homes. Now, interestingly, historian B. Wilson writes in her book, Consider the Fork, that the cast iron kitchen range was one of those curious technologies which became an object of consumer desire without offering much real improvement on what came before. It didn't save labour, quite the opposite in many cases. Getting a fire started was no easier in a stove than in a hearth, and polishing and cleaning the range was practically a full-time job, whether for a servant or a wife. Just as Monday was washing day and Tuesday was for ironing, most New Zealand housewives in the late 19th and early 20th centuries devoted a day a week to cleaning and polishing the stove, a task which seems to have been universally hated. <laughs> Waikato woman Sophie Mae Johnson-Smith describes it in great detail in her autobiography, writing, Three extras came with the stove, a flue brush, a poker and a scraper. From the door in the front of the chimney, the flue brush was pushed up and down, thus bringing down the soot which was drawn out from below the oven with a scraper. If you think you have done with the stove, you are sadly mistaken. So far, only the inside has been cleaned. The worst is yet to come. That great big bulk now has to be polished, the dirtiest job of all. Place a cake of black lead in a shallow tin of water, wait until dissolved, and then a brush 
and then with a brush paint the whole face of the stove. Now with a dry brush similar to a boot brush and the hand, with a handle, polish until a satisfactory shine has been achieved, by which time the whole kitchen is filled with dust. <laughs> As well as being cleaned and polished, the kitchen range also had to be kept stoked. So either firewood had to be cut or coal carted. Environmental historian Graham Wynne estimates that in the late 19th century, the average New Zealand family used two tonnes of firewood per person per year for warmth and cooking. Cutting all of that firewood was usually men's work, uh, but there are many tales of women dishing up stone-cold and uncooked dinners in protest of having to collect their own wood <laughs> for the fire, and in most cases the husbands do seem to have taken the hint. <laughs> Despite these inconveniences, the kitchen range nevertheless was an object of consumer desire, and it was a defining feature of New Zealand kitchens for more than half a century. Even when gas and electrical stoves became more affordable and accessible, not everyone chose to give up their kitchen ranges, and the uptake, of new the uptake of new technologies remained uneven and unilinear. Partly this was economic, in that many people could not afford to replace a piece of equipment that still worked. But other factors were at play too. Some women, for example, were reluctant to relinquish the sense of domestic mastery that came from using a coal range and they continued using the technology they were familiar with. There was practical skill involved in using a coal range, and that was something to be proud of. In the absence of temperature gauges, you had to learn how to test the temperature of the stove manually, which was often done by sprinkling a little bit of flour on the hot plate and seeing how long it took to brown. And then once it was at the right temperature, you had to keep it there by adjusting the dampers on the top of the range and keeping the fire up. All of this was quite apart from the actual preparation of the meal. The use of electric appliances, meanwhile, involved a completely different set of processes, and for some it seemed to diminish the craft of cooking. Certainly ads like this one, which suggested that the stove did all of the work, don't praise me, praise my Nico, uh, must have been a bit disheartening for women who took real pride and satisfaction in cooking. Gwen Wingate Mackenzie, who grew up on a farm near Palmerston North in the 1930s, wrote in her autobiography that her mother never stopped using the old coal range even when her dad bought her a Moffat electric stove. She didn't like the electric oven, but she was confident of always producing an award-winning sponge cake using her tried and true range. Other New Zealanders felt quite ambivalent about new domestic technologies because they recognised that in fact, to replace a coal range with an electric stove was to transform many of the routines of daily life. Reminiscing on her childhood in Northland in the 1910s, Verna Jones asked in her 18, uh, 1981 autobiography if, with all our appliances, time-saving I admit, and often clever in the extreme, is something comforting and secure going from our lives. Sometimes I feel it is, and I wonder if the price is too high. Now, I always found that idea of the coal range being comforting, secure, quite odd, but then I realised it's because I've never used one. Um, those of you, if there are any that have, um, will know that a kitchen range at the height of its power absolutely belts out heat, warming the whole room and filling it with the smells and sounds of cooking. This is part of the reason for the notion of the kitchen as the heart of the home. Often it was the only warm room in the house and it was therefore the place where people congregated to rest and relax. When people remember the coal range, they don't just remember cooking, but also reading, sharing stories, taking baths, listening to the radio, playing games, dancing and singing, because all of these things and more happened in front of the range.
One Takapuna woman wrote that, what can surpass the smell of freshly baked yeasty buns and frying onions and bacon wafting across the paddock as you trudge along in muddy gumboots towards home? Yes, the kitchen with its huge table and warm fire was the hub of our little universe. So in this context, I hope you sort of get some sense of what changing domestic technology, which is in some ways a sort of seemingly inconsequential consumer decision, actually meant in terms of people's day-to-day -day experiences. The move from kitchen ranges to electric and gas appliances signalled a real shift in how people cooked, in the types of household chores they had to do, and the ways they used the spaces within their homes. And by tracing those changes and examining everyday kitchen culture, we can actually find out quite a lot about how people how and why people structured their everyday lives. Okay, so that's a little bit about the domestic technology. Now I'd like to move on to the provisioning section. And for this, I'd like to begin with some pieces of dairy processing equipment from the Guard family home at Kakapo Bay in the Marlborough Sounds. So pictured here are a glass butter churn, a set of butter pats and a butter mould, which all date from the early 20th century. These would have been used to produce small quantities of butter for household use, necessary given the relative isolation of the home at Kakapo Bay and the difficulty of getting fresh produce. The family collection also includes a copper preserving pan and a number of preserving jars, which you can see in the blog that I wrote about <laughs> preserving and bottling. Um, and that suggests that the family carried out these activities on a large scale. The guards settled in Kakapo Bay in 1832 after Patriarch Jackie Gard had established one of New Zealand's first shore whaling stations there in about 1828. The whaling industry was short-lived, however, so after Jackie's death in 1857, his son Edward took over the land and set about establishing a farm. It was a laborious pro process and the cleared land was not very productive, but Edward and his wife Emma kept an extensive orchard and kitchen garden, poultry and house cows, which helped to provide for the family's subsistence needs. These activities carried on well into the 20th century and the churn, butter moulds, pats and preserving equipment were kept in the family home until the 1990s when they were donated to the National Museum, the forerunner of Te Papa. This photo from around 1890 shows Edward and Emma Gard standing in front of their wooden cottage with other members of the Gard family, as well as a flock of geese, chickens, a sheep and three house cows. This scene is representative of many 19th century farming households, as most families operated what American historian Deborah Fink describes as a dual economy. In addition to the commercial operations, whether they be farming, fishing, bush felling, labouring or, or what have you, virtually all farms also provided for their own subsistence needs by growing their own vegetables, keeping pigs and poultry for meat and milking a cow or two for, milk, uh, for butter and cheese and things. Tony Simpson explains in his History of New Zealand Cuisine that many of the settlers who arrived in New Zealand in the 19th century came with both an experience of agricultural hunger and a determination that they would not, in their new country, starve as they had done in the old. The market gardening culture they transplanted to the Antipodes, centred on small-scale production for domestic consumption, had been disrupted in Britain by the process of land enclosure, resulting in hunger and poverty. But here in New Zealand, these subsistence activities provided an effective safeguard against food scarcity and provided flexibility which balanced, balanced swings in the economy. Even if the farm wasn't paying, most families could survive on what they produced themselves until profits picked up and as a result enjoyed self-sufficient lifestyles that were markedly more comfortable than their counterparts in rural Britain. 
Perhaps the greatest test of this provisioning, provisioning system was the Great Depression of the late 1920s, early 1930s. And the dominant narrative of the rural experience is that although money was scarce, there was still plenty of food. King Country farmer Helen Wilson later explained in her autobiography that the farmers had been facing ruin for well nigh a year before the workers of the towns and cities felt the full force of the blizzard. We country people had thought of it as our slump, our special ruin. Now we realised the indivisibility of calamity and that there were those still more naked to the blast than we. At least we could eat. The unemployed were hungry. Well-established provisioning practices protected Wilson and many others like her from the full force of the calamity and meant that they could survive through periods of economic instability. Anecdotal evidence suggests that by the early 20th century, many Māori communities had also adopted a more mixed form of subsistence agriculture. The Waitangi Tribunal's report Te Ehu o Te Waka a Māori, for example, notes that, the early 20th that in the early 20th century, Māori in the northern South Island began to produce a wider range of foods, including dairy products, mutton, beef, poultry and garden vegetables, in order to replace some of the traditional food resources they had lost. These were precarious lifestyles, however, for much of the land left to Māori was undeveloped or undevelopable and provided only the barest subsistence. Mary Hutchinson's description of her early life at the Hawke's Bay settlement of Porangahau in the 1920s likely represents the situation for many communities in the early 20th century. And she writes that the local families went to school and then when they finished, they didn't go on to high or out to college or anything. They stayed home, went to do mahi, and then before the summer came, we went to the gardens. We used to have a big garden. They milked cows and had sheep, but there were no permanent jobs. We just worked amongst ourselves, lived off the land and lived off the sea. The old people used to go or send us young ones to the beach to gather kai. For Medi's community, as for so many others, the sea was a great provider and the gathering of kaimoana was required for physical survival. Edward Birch, giving evidence for te roroa, recalled that when I think back to the resources that used to abound in Waipoa, I also have to think of the sea. It was a major part of our lifestyle back then. These resources to us were essential. We could gather our power, kina, muscles, tokeroa, which were very common from Ngāti Tihiru to Waikara, approximately 10 miles of beach. There was enough kaimoana in this rich and beautiful coastline to feed all the other settlements as well as our own. These harvesting practices likely saved a number of communities from severe deprivation, but as Naitahu uh, historian Bill Dacker explains, they also transmitted mataronga Māori from one generation to the next. During the preparation for the food gathering season, the expedition itself and the return, writes Dacker, elements of taha Māori remained strong that no longer existed in other parts of the lives of an increasing number of those involved. The Waitangi Tribunal report for Tito Ihu o Te Waka a Maui also notes that the harvesting of kai helped iwi to resist acculturation from the surrounding Pākehā majority. As evidence for this point, the report includes extensive testimony from Lōpata Stevens. Stevens detailed the life of his grandfather, Warana Tiwini, who was born in Mochuaka in 1876 and lived there most of his life. He told the tribunal, my grandfather faced the pressures of two worlds in which he had been brought up and in which he lived. On the one hand, he was definitely Māori. He spoke te reo, gathered food from the landscape in accordance with traditional practices and occupied papakainga land. Wadana understood the process and value of manakatanga 
and was a good provider and host. Even so, the pressure of assimilation faced by my grandfather from living in a predominantly Pākehā community must have been intense and too difficult to resist. He never publicly asserted his mouldiness, and I believe this was to save from becoming isolated from the community that he worked so hard to be a part of. Warana did, however, continue to gather customary foods, despite facing ridicule from others in the community. The community knew when they saw my grandfather with his whānau heading in the direction of the beach, the time must be close to low tide, as this was a regular activity. A Pākehā called mockingly from the footpath in a big booming voice, Hello Warren, going down to the old Māori butcher shop, eh? My father could sense the sarcasm in the voice of the Pākehā and willed his father to answer him in the same contemptuous manner. But being the gentleman he was, my grandfather replied, Yes, Mr Smith, when the tide is out, the table is set. The harvest and distribution of kai were governed by the concepts of kaitea katanga, guardianship or stewardship, whanauna tanga, the sense of family connection, and manakatanga, hospitality and kindness. For, as Kath Hemi of Natiapa explained, your kai and its care was your mana. As these examples demonstrate, Māori and Pākehā provisioning systems were more than a means of meeting physical needs. They were expressions of culture, shaped by markedly different conceptions of land and conflicting sets of principles governing the use of natural resources. I found that examining these systems side by side and focusing on personal experiences of plenty or want brought the economic, environmental and cultural consequences of colonialism into sharp focus, and hopefully the result is a new perspective on New Zealand's rural history. Okay, so that's a little bit about provisioning. For the final uh, section, I'd like to explore some of the material and cultural history of those concepts of hospitality and manakatanga in rural areas. And to do that, I'd like to begin with the humble kettle, a standard feature of every New Zealand kitchen from the very earliest days of European settlement. This iron kitchen is also from the Gard family collection and would have hung on a chain and hook from a bar above the fireplace. The guards had a colonial oven until the turn of the century, and then they transitioned to a champion range with two ovens, which was a major event in the household. In their kitchen, as in so many others, the kitchen was in use almost constantly, and it was said that the maxim of the true back blocks woman was trust in God and keep the kettle boiling. <laughs> this motto denoted the importance of hospitality to rural people, and the kettle stood as an emblem of that hospitality. It was a point of pride for rural people to give a generous welcome to visitors, no matter how unexpected, and the offer of a cup of tea ushered many a guest into the warmth of the kitchen. The Auckland Star ran an article on bush hospitality in September 1928 and wrote that no stray visitor, no matter at what hour he may arrive, can be permitted to depart without the customary cup of tea. Uh, similarly, Gwen McKenzie recalled that her mother always had a kettle boiling on the stove, even in the poorest of times, and that however unsavoury any stranger may be that knocked at the door, her mother still offered him a warming cup of tea before sending him on his way further up the valley. The origin of this tradition of hospitality has been attributed to a number of sources. It's perhaps fitting that the kettle I showed you from the Gard family uh, came from a former whaling station, because in 1967, writers Alison Allard Drummond suggested that of the things the whalers brought to New Zealand, only the most durable have survived, namely a few big iron tripods and a tradition of generous hospitality. Another writer, describing the early settlement of Otago, contended that hospitality was a national characteristic of the Scots, 
which in New Zealand had every scope for expression. But I think the most likely explanation is probably more prag pragmatic. Whereas Miles Fairburn, Fairburn argued in the ideal society and its enemies that 19th century settler society was too transient to allow solid attachments to form between neighbours, I found that the social isolation and transience of the early settlers in fact resulted in an ethos of hospitality which continued to define rural communities into the 20th century. Geographic isolation meant that resources and practical assistance had to come from within the community. And under such conditions, it did not pay to distance yourself from your neighbours. Civility, if not sincere cordiality, was usually the wise and necessary course. And the sharing of meals or a cuppa was one way of encoding those community relations. Sorry for all the text there, but... Um, in her autobiography, Dim Horizons, Jean Boswell gives a wonderful explanation of how her community at Mangafari on the outskirts of Dargaville operated in the 1890s. She writes that on the whole we were a happy little community. Differences, even quarrels there were, but it only needed one of the belligerents to get into some difficulty, however trivial, to make his erstwhile enemy rush to his assistance. Not that all forbearance or forgiveness was always a manifestation of the Christian spirit. Often good neighbourliness was simply good policy. A mutual need saw to it that the rents in the fabric of friendship were soon patched up and pride pocketed as soon as compatible with honour. The settlers couldn't afford to let offences rankle, for they were so dependent one on the other. Adversity is the best adhesive plaster for drawing together the torn edges of the body social, and pretty generally it was the women who were the peacemakers. There would be a wordy battle royale going on between the men, but their wives would still visit, even at the risk of a row in their own homes, and violent quarrels could scarcely be kept up under such circumstances. So, with the kettle steaming in the background and a cup of tea in hand, these women were actively reinforcing the bonds of community and facilitating other forms of social and economic cooperation. The warming cuppa was also a powerful expression of hospitality in Māori communities, and in an interview with historian Paul Moon, Tuhoe Tohanga Hohe Pakiriopa explained that one of the things that needs to be talked about, Paul, when you're talking about food is the concept of manaki. We were told to manaki. If we saw anybody, we would always call out to them. And when people talk about karanga, they think of the marae, but for us, the karanga was always practised here. When you saw someone going past on the road, you'd karanga them and offer them a cup of tea. And when they accepted your offer, you'd race around trying to figure out how you were going to get a cup of tea. <laughs> and our people have always said, even if it's just a cup of water, the most important thing is that you offer it. These everyday uh, displays of manakatanga were as significant as the lavish feasts offered at Hui and Hikari, enhancing the mana of the provider as well as ensuring the physical and mental health of the recipient. Harata Solomon of Ngāti Toa, Ngāti Raukawa and Te Ate Awa descent recalled that before visitors had even made it to the door of their home, her grandmother Ria, having seen them walking up the driveway, would have the kettle on and a batch of scones in the oven. Similarly, Amiria Sterling's mother-in-law, Mihi, couldn't bear to see people going past her home. They had to call in. Even if you were going by yourself on horseback, she'd stand on the veranda and wave you in to have a cup of tea. For both Māori and Pākehā rural people, being able to welcome and provide for visitors was a source of great pride. And in the words of one woman who wrote to the dairy exporter in 1929, the proper use of the tea kettle could be a mighty force. So um, hopefully that's given you a little bit of an, a sense of some of the insights that we can gain from uh, the history of food and cooking and some of the wonderful sources and stories that are available to tell those stories. But thank you again for coming and uh, for listening.